today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at some of the difficult texts of the Old Testament. Last episode with Father Reuter, we saw that the Bible is credible. But today we'll look at two specific points. First, how are we supposed to interpret some of the more controversial points of the Old Testament? Was the God of the Old Testament a God of wrath and jealousy? Second, why did God choose a specific group of people, single them out, as his chosen people. Is that fair? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Stephen Ruder for episode number nine of the Apologetic Series. Father Ruder, it is great to have you back again this week for another uh, another look at Scripture in the Old Testament. How are you doing this week? I'm well, Andrew, and it's great to be back. Great, great to have you. Uh, last time we talked, we looked at the Old Testament. We looked at Revelation. Well, Father McFarlane helped us look through Revelation, uh, but in the Old Testament uh, last episode, you were talking about how the Old Testament can be seen as a true document. We went through all of the different uh, historical uh, bases for credibility, essentially, of Scripture. Uh, this week, we're going to kind of stay in the realm of the Old Testament, but we're going to start to look at the content of it. Uh, and we're calling this episode the Theology of History. So what do you mean by the theology of history, other than we're just going to be looking at the Bible today? Yes, we're really trying to to make sense of the Old Testament. And I think before maybe even to go into what's meant by the theology of history, we'll want to consider the terms. That's generally how we, we begin any topic is, is the terms. So we have, of course, the word theology. And as the word indicates, it means the study of God. That's the etymology of theology. And of course, we have the word history. And history is a discipline by which you consider the acts of men throughout time. So we have these two disciplines coming together, the discipline of theology and the discipline of history. And to really engage in either of these disciplines, which is necessary before we put them together, we must accept the proofs that God exists and that he can be known through revelation which are things already covered in in previous episodes. And we must also accept the fact that history is intelligible, that we can read into historical events. So history is not just isolated, unrelated, unintelligible facts, but acts by free men, free men who are wounded by original sin and inspired by grace. So we can make a comparison. So as a true scientist sees the world which God created as intelligible and is able to see God through the world, so likewise the true historian can see history as intelligible and can see the hand, the finger of God, directing all things. So when we're looking at history, we're asking the why question. And not only... Why did men do these things? But why from God's point of view? 
Why did God do these things? Why did God allow these things? And of course, we need to lean upon revelation for much of this. Sure. As we've seen in, in, like you said, in previous episodes, we've seen that history, the story of humankind, the story of God's creation is not just uh, God set things in motion and just lets them go. He is playing an active role in history, in the history of, of humans, in the history of the universe. Uh, and we see that a lot in the Old Testament. We don't see it as much in the New Testament, but we do see that a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, can you speak on that a little bit and, and kind of how that all works and fits together? Yes. And I think for that, we can maybe re- recap some of the conferences and things you've already spoken about, but just condense them a bit so it's present in everybody's mind as we go through this discipline. So as you mentioned, God not only created everything from nothing, but he holds all things in existence at each moment. So God is this pure act of existence, holding all things in existence. He's also a personal God, and he created with a purpose in mind. That purpose we know is twofold. His glory, our salvation And we also know that since he holds everything in existence as a personal God, he's directing things by his providence to their perfection, which is his glory. So God doesn't have this passive role in regards to reality around him. He has this active role. He's holding it in existence and directing it towards himself. But we also know know that God wanted to create a moral universe. And in a moral universe, that means people can sin and people can do virtuous things. That's important to understand. And therefore, though he wills men to do good, he allows evil for the sake of a greater good. So again, I know you went over these things in the previous episodes, but God is is this pure act of existence, directing all things towards their end. He created man free. He respects man's free will. But man also is fallen. Okay, due to original sin, man has these wounds, these disorders. And the doctrine of original sin, though we have revelation to tell us exactly what it is and the different wounds involved, we know that even the pagans understood that something was wrong with man. In fact, there's a quote from from the book The Greek Way, where the author notes that the Greeks understood that man was born sick, but that he must live well, which is the whole notion of Christian virtue. We're born with the wounds of original sin. By virtue, we live well. So there's a bit of a recap of God's goodness, man's freedom, man's wounded. And God cannot idly stand by, so to speak, and let man just offend him with impunity. God does intervene. But he must intervene in a way which respects man's free will because God created a moral universe. And there's an interesting Mm -hmm. reference to this in Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, where he notes that original sin is one of the few things in Christianity which can be proved, we can say, with empirical science. Just look outside and see the way people behave. And we see something's not quite right in men, but... We still have a criminal system as far as punishing criminals because we believe that when we misbehave, we are culpable. We must be punished. Those are common Mm -hmm. sense, you know, supports for 
what you've already gone through in earlier episodes, and they set the foundation a bit for what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, again, this episode is titled The Theology of History. Um, and I think some people uh, can often confuse the terms theology versus philosophy. Theology is more the the, the truth, and I'm, I'm way oversimplifying it and probably not explaining it well, but I'd, I'd like you to ask ask us to help uh, help us figure out a little bit more about the differences between the two. But uh, theology versus philosophy, they're, they're very closely connected. Yes. In fact, we call, in the scholastic tradition, calls philosophy the handmaid of theology. It gives us all of the principles we need, a proper understanding of the order God created, so that we're disposed to learn theology. So it is a very important discipline, the philosophy by which we consider the natural truths with our reason. And in fact, there is what we call a philosophy of history, and everybody has one. Just like everybody has a philosophy, everybody has a philosophy of history. And even if somebody says they don't have a philosophy, that is their philosophy. Their philosophy is to refuse to think philosophically. But everybody has a philosophy and a philosophy of history. And we can give a definition from a a, um, professor of philosophy, um, Gordon Graham from the University of Aberdeen. He defines the philosophy of history as the application of of philosophical conceptions to the analysis of history. So you look back at the actions of men and events throughout times, and you seek to apply to these realities certain philosophical conceptions to analyze them in a higher light. So in other words, we can identify a philosophy of history by its conscious use of philosophical categories to describe and identify transcendent motives which are carried throughout history. Again, history is not this unintelligible, isolated act which from different men and we can't understand it. There's different things which tie things together. In first place, mankind fallen by original sin pursuing certain goods. And we can see this concretely, for example, with the Marxist philosophy of history which can be defined as one who sees a definite economic determinism shaping the movement of history to the triumph of the socialist man. So the Marxists see everything in this philosophy, a false philosophy. The evolutionist philosophy of history looks at all progress as a result of a continual war between species. Again, they're not looking for higher principles above the species, But they just see on, we can say, the horizontal level, this war between species, which creates new things. And so we we can really summarize that by saying the philosophy of history is the lens through which somebody looks at historical events and tries to make them intelligible. And of course, these two lens, which we just described, the Marxism or the evolutionist, they're false lens. They're misinterpreting history which means they're not going to have a proper understanding of history. And of course they can't because they do not have a proper understanding of man. And I know you went over that with Father Albert, but if you don't understand man, you can't understand history because history is the history of men and their actions in this world. 
But in fact, even if you do have a proper understanding of man, you're not going to have a complete understanding or a complete under yeah a complete understanding of the philosophy of history without the theology of history. And the reason for that is man has a supernatural destiny. So man was created by God for a supernatural destiny. And therefore, as St. Augustine points out, that we must use revelation to properly analyze history. We can't have a full picture of the history of man without understanding God as he reveals himself to us. So he tells us that Holy Scripture gives us clues to properly interpret and understand the history of man. So the divine purpose for humanity cannot be ascertained in any other way except through the sacred text, which tell us in what circumstances God intervenes in this world and the reason for his interventions. Um, in the... So, so we're basically looking at the way that that man interprets or or understands our own story, our own history. Yeah. Uh, and, Great story and of mankind. Saying, and you're saying that we can't do that without understanding the theology of it. So, so the philosophy is how do men see uh, their story, their history, their experiences, and I guess from that derives kind of culture and and then civilization, et cetera. But now we need to look at all right. What is what should be driving our understanding of history, and that is the theology of history. Exactly. Yes. Okay. If you have a complete picture, we really need sacred scripture, revelation, and what we call the theology of history. And we'll give a simple definition by a Dr. Robert Lizo. He he teaches in in Texas. He says the theology of history will attempt to think theologically about history identifying spiritual forces that shape it. So simple, and I think a summary of what we've already said, but we really try to think theologically about history. So again, theology is a study of God, God who's simple, God who's personal, God who's charity. History is a study of man who's free and fallen. So how does this God who is charity intervene in the history of man who has fallen? knowing that God does all things for the sake of charity, to bring souls to him. So how do things come from God? Why are things allowed by God? How do we return to God? So we seek to make sense of many complicated historical events in light of what we know about God and know about man. God's whose providence is all-powerful, man who, again, is fallen. So we do use our knowledge from Revelation, from the books of the Bible. In the last podcast, the purpose of that was to establish that if you look at the manuscripts of the Bible, you realize there's more reason to believe in the veracity, the authenticity of these manuscripts more than any other historical book. So we've established that at least we do have books which were transcribed, which correspond to the originals. But of course, in the Bible, there's many difficult things. So the purpose of this episode is how do we make sense of some of these things, which in fact offend often our sensitivities. They, they strike us as very strange. And this, in fact, is not a new endeavor. Often today we think that 
you know, were these great enlightened scholars and were considering everything for the first time. But the fathers of the church, who were really, you know, heavy hitters when it came to understanding scripture, they already wrestled with these topics quite extensively. And a great number of these fathers had the Bible memorized. They were closer to the original sources. So they really, they really are authorities on their matters, on these matters. And one of these authorities, of course, is St. Augustine, who was living through the fall of Rome. And so Rome, which had civilized the world, had conquered the world, was being conquered. Rome was falling. And Jerome, another great scripture scholar and theologian and father, he wept when Rome fell because the whole structure people knew and relied upon in spite of its sinful imperfections was just this anchor of culture and law. So it was falling. So St. Augustine was trying to make sense of it and to answer the objections of those who accused Christianity of being the reason why Rome was falling. And so St. Augustine just kind of traces the whole history of the world from Adam to his time. And he notes those famous words, two loves created two cities. You know, self-love, the city of man, the love of God, the city of God. And he shows that in the linear history which he was considering from Adam to his time, there's a number of cyclical patterns within the linear history, which in fact we're going to see until the end of time. So a linear history from creation until the apocalypse, but these cycles within the linear history. And it's two loves which provoke these two cycles. The love of self, which leads to chaos. The love of God, which leads to order. So God created all things in pure love, and he wants man to freely love him. Man rejected love by sin, which is a disordered self-love. Or as St. Augustine says, sin is a perverse imitation of the power of God. Man continues to offend God through sin. And God is constantly throughout history on these rescue missions to bring man back to God while respecting man's free will. So we have order, chaos, back to order. And often God has to do some drastic things to bring order out of chaos. But this is the essence of the cyclical view. God in pursuit of man, man who's free is kind of wrestling with God. God is respecting man's free will and bringing him back to order. And so when St. Augustine wrote the City of God, he saw history in three great parts or acts. The age preceding the law, which was Adam to Abraham. The age under the law, Moses to Christ, and the age of grace, Christ till the end of the world. And in each of these three dramas, we do have this cycle which constantly repeats. God working, trying to bring man to his perfection. And all history, of course, centers on the incarnation. So everything in the Old Testament is preparing for Christ. Everything in the New Testament must be referred to Christ. And as we will see in a moment, Origen in his kind of analysis of history says the exact same thing is everything in history must be looked at in light of the last book of the Bible, which is the apocalypse. So we see that the theology of history was considered by Augustine and Origen. And I guess since we're there, we can just note that Origen held we need to read the whole Bible 
in light of the last book of the Bible, notably the Lamb who is as slain. So we see in the last book of the Bible, Christ is the Lamb of God who is in heaven offering himself as a victim to the Father. And every book must be seen in light of that great reality. We're going to appear before Jesus Christ, who is our judge, Christ, who is our redeemer. And so with that, Origen would especially look at the kind of the violent scenes, the Old Testament, and he would try to see and he would see, and as we must see, a spiritual sense rooted in the literal sense. For example, the violence in the Old Testament shows the spiritual struggle allegorically and how we must fight evil. The killing of the enemies symbolizes that we must battle evil our whole life. And some evil is so bad that it must be hacked to pieces. So again, there are historical events which are very brutal, but there was a purpose. The purpose was everything was for the sake of preserving faith in Christ and teaching people how to fight sin, how to fight evil. So that was Origen's way to make sense of the Old Testament and give coherence to the whole Old Testament. Everything must be seen in light of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God in heaven. So some of the books then are simply allegorical in the Old Testament, or some of them are are historical, but they have allegory imbued in them, or... Yeah, so here we're, we're focusing on the historical books. And so okay. the historical books are historical. Their primary sense is historical. But we must also see a, a spiritual interpretation of them as well. But the spiritual interpretation is rooted in historical facts, which are being described as true historical events. Okay. So I was going to say, there's there are a lot of very violent scenes, very interesting uh, scenes in the Old Testament. I guess we'll get there here in a second. Yes. Um, but I guess we can then start to look at um, the chosen people, right? The the Jews at that point uh, in history, the chosen race of our Lord, uh, not of our Lord, but of God. Um, so what happened? Why was there a chosen people? Where do we start with, with kind of looking at this, Father? So I think maybe before we go into that directly, we'll just note that because you asked the question, I think I didn't quite finish it. There are many different genres of books in the Old Testament, so many different styles of writing. And and when you go to a bookstore, you always kind of check, you know, what is what is the genre? Is it history? Is it fiction? And you're going to read it differently based on what it is. So there are many different genres in the Old Testament. That's that's for sure. But God is the primary author of them all. That's something we've already mentioned. God is the author, and he uses secondary authors. And so we do have to keep that in mind, is the reason that we can have an intelligible arc throughout the whole Old Testament, even through different genres, is God is the primary author, and St. Thomas states that, who uses secondary authors. But God is so powerful that he not only inspires the authors to write down certain words, but he inspires people to do certain actions. And a lot of these actions are meant to point to future events. And they're meant to teach us about future events. So that's how powerful God is. He's the author of the actions and the words. And both the actions and the words in Scripture 
do point often to future and beautiful events. So I just want to kind of give that context a little more before we go into the actual formation of Israel. Okay. All right. So, so I, I guess it's kind of the point that you were saying earlier, there's, there's order and then there's chaos, there's order and then there's disorder and then God brings it back in. So the formation of, of Israel is, is God intervening in that sense. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So, you know, we could start with Cain and Abel a little bit, but I, I know we're limited on time. So we already see that with Cain and Abel, Abel offering a sacrifice, which is perfectly ordered. Cain not offering a sacrifice pleasing to God, which is disordered, murder. And we also see God trying to save Cain. So we do already see a little image of what the whole Old Testament is going to be like with Cain and Abel. But I'd like to start more properly with the time of the flood, because that's when we see chaos, we can say at an institutional level. So by chapter 6 of Genesis, we see the collapse not of a you know few people or the sins of a few people. We see a moral collapse of society in general. And just to quote Genesis, And now God found the earth was full of men's iniquities, and that the whole frame of their thoughts was set continually on evil, and he repented of having made man on the earth. So we see that basically man, who's a creature who must be offering sacrifice, is not worshiping God. And so God is going to seek to bring order out of this moral chaos. And his response to the moral collapse of Genesis chapter 6 indicates his mode of operation all throughout the salvation history. He singles out a just man, gives this man special grace, and invites men to come into the ark which Noah will build, an ark which is a symbol of the church by which men will be saved. And yet another reoccurring theme, so one theme is that God chooses a man to act as a redeemer, The other is that most people are not interested in this redemption. And the same mystery by which man was able to offend God in the garden allows us to offend God now. So Noah builds the ark, but very few enter into the ark. And then we see when Noah leaves the ark, he's meant to be like a new Adam. And he's meant to build the city of God. And for that reason, the first act of Noah is sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice to the Lord. So here we see all the elements in, this, in these cycles. God chooses a man, gives him grace. This man seeks to restore the city of God through sacrifice. And in the book, The City of God, St. Augustine reads the history of salvation from biblical times through the era of the church as the tale of Noah's Ark. The little ship filled with a holy remnant bouncing on the waves of a stormy sea. And so I think that's the first, you know, scene to consider is the chaos of sin, restoration through Noah, and all these all this imagery, the ark of salvation, sacrifice, people's need to enter into this ark. And then God continues this work of singling out Abraham. So he, he requires Abraham to leave all this comfort all of his security, to go to a land that he does not know. And Abraham listens to God, which is typical, typical 
of all those who try to build the city of God, who seek order in the world. They listen to God. And Abraham will become the father of our faith. So everybody who is a believer in Christ today looks to Abraham as their father. And Abraham was justified thanks to his faith, but then was obliged to do good works which corresponded to his faith. And that one particular work was circumcision, which will be the sign of the covenant, by which mankind are invited to enter into the chosen people so as to preserve their faith in Christ to come. So as people had to enter the ark to be saved at the time of Noah, now through Abraham, they must receive circumcision to enter into the people of God so they can be saved. Hmm. So it's, it's again, this, this concept of singling someone out, giving them some information or giving them the ability to help save the people around them. He's doing that with Noah. Now he's doing that with, with Abraham. Um, and did they have, did, did the early uh, chosen people at this point, did they have a great amount of understanding about theology or was it just kind of, they were just kind of going along with things and just trying to be moral or. Well, they had primitive revelation as you've seen with, you know, God, speaking to Adam. So they did a primitive revelation, but we see the corruption of that very quickly. In fact, when, you know, look at Cain and Abel, we have Cain already offering a sacrifice not pleasing to God. So in fact, we see it as a pretty painful process. The early Jews did not come ready-made with great spiritual conceptions ready to accept the Messiah, to believe in afterlife. They had to be painfully extracted from all of the various peoples who were sunk in false worship, polytheism, mm. diabolical worship, all these things. So God has to carve out this people who are sunk in all this idolatry so they believe in one true God and can believe in his son who will come. So God judged the best way to implement his plan which leads to Jesus Christ, to form a chosen people through a series of historical events with tangible consequences. So it wasn't an easy process. God is like a sculptor carving out these people who are hard of heart, who are stiff of neck. He is trying to drive into their minds and hearts that he is God, who is all-powerful, who is all-good, who requires our absolute adoration, thanksgiving, petition and praise. So what we're seeing in the Old Testament is God carving out this people who will then bring in the Redeemer promises promised in Genesis 3.15, through which all man will be saved. Hmm. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to this in, in a little bit, but why, why the idea, and this is a little bit off script, so forgive me, but why the idea of, of God choosing just a single group of people uh, why not offer this to everyone? You know, taking devil's advocate, it seems a little unfair that he would have a chosen people of a chosen race, you know, to our especially modern concepts of don't be racist, right? That mm-hmm. comes across as, as very, mm-hmm. not, uh, very not fair. God is not as politically as correct as we are. Right. Um, in fact, as we see elsewhere in theology that, you know, God's gifts are free 
And he loves everybody sufficiently for each person to be saved, but he does shower his love on others more profusely. So it is a mystery of God's freedom, how he does shower his graces on some people more profusely than others. And the gifts of God, as St. Paul says, are without out, um, repentance. But in a particular angle I think we can look at is God loves to give his gifts through human instrumentality. That way we remain humble and dependent on God. And so God mm. chose the Jews. He gave them very special gifts, and he wanted to give Jesus Christ to the world through them. For example, circumcision, the purpose of that was to express their faith that Christ would be of their offspring. And so it really is the way God works with mankind. It's the same in the church today. God could have created some um, method of some formula to say by which your sins were forgiven, yet he requires us to confess our sins to priests. So God mm -hmm. wants to respect our human nature and give us good things through other creatures. Interesting. So in one of the pivotal points of this formation of, of the chosen people was geography. Uh, yeah. and, and we're still seeing that today, that, that it wasn't just you are a chosen people, but there is a chosen place as well. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because that always seems to me as a little bit overly tangible, overly materialistic for God to, to do, just to be blunt. Yeah, I know it's a very, very special place. And, and we went to the Holy Land once, and you can see when you're there that Christ is the sign of contradiction. You know, you have the Jews, the Catholics, the Muslims, all there with their particular claims to, to this, this piece of geography. And so there's two yeah. elements there, is, and we can look at Genesis— yeah. To consider that, Genesis 12, chapter 7, to your offspring I will give this land. So, to your offspring. So, of course, here we have Abraham, and we can ask ourselves, who is the offspring of Abraham? Well, the Muslims will claim it that they are through Ishmael. The Jews will claim that they are according to the flesh. And, of course, we know that we are according to grace, because... As Abraham believed in Christ to come, we believe in Christ who came. So the offspring is one element, but also this land. So we have seen throughout history, really since the promise of God to Abraham to give him this land, that this particular plot of land, we know east of the Mediterranean, west of the Jordan, is of crucial importance. And it's more than just a piece of real estate. It's a symbol of divine favor. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. But it's meant to be the base of operations to announce the God, to announce the gospel to the world, to bring the true faith to all mankind. And ultimately, the Holy Land is meant to be an anticipation of the homeland of heaven. A lot of symbolism there. But even if you look at the geography, it's very much protected by the mountains of the north, the deserts to the east, as the port by which it can travel across the known world. Even there is some symbolism. A well-protected piece of land, and Jerusalem itself is even more protected by the valleys around it. So this very well-fortified piece of land, which has access to the sea, by which the faith was meant to spread to the whole world. 
which in fact happened with the apostles. And so that's the land. And so the Jews at their time were always fighting for it, defending it, planting vineyards in it, having it taken from them by the Babylonians. So it's been very contentious throughout history. But the symbolism is important. This place of refuge where they can worship God, a symbol of of heaven. But more important than the real estate, so to speak, is the offspring. So Sarah conceives when she's beyond the childbearing years. So it's a miraculous conception. Abraham understood that she should not have been able to conceive, but he always believed she would because God promised it. And we note that unlikely births are are common in Scripture because God wants us to trust in grace over nature. And so God's constantly testing the faith of Abraham. And why? Because Abraham is meant to be the father of faith. And so his faith must be purified like gold in a fire. Of course, the most incredible test is when he's commanded to take the son of the promise, his only begotten son through Sarah, and offer him in a burnt offering to our Lord. And we know, and you know, you see it frequently on people people's social media or whatnot who are opposed to the faith, is they'll bring this up is God was a cruel tyrant and manipulating Abraham and Isaac. So it's certainly worth considering this this important moment in human history when the faith of Abraham is profoundly tested. Right. I mean, so just to be, again, totally uh, devil's advocate about this, how is it that God, who is supposed to be good, asked a man to sacrifice his only son? Um, we see the parallels, like knowing knowing the parallels of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. But before we even get to that, because we haven't gotten to the New Testament yet, just looking at that, how is that right? How is that fair? How is that yeah. Yeah, it's uh, edifying, really? Worth considering for sure. And we'll just give a few lines from the interaction between God and Abraham. So God called him Abraham, and Abraham responded, I am here. And God told him, take thy only son, thy beloved son Isaac, with thee, and offer him in a burnt sacrifice on the mountain which I will show you. So take your son, go on a three-day journey, have your son carry the wood of sacrifice, and then when you get there, offer him to the Lord. And Abraham accepted to do this. So why? Well, let's go back to the ecclesiastical author origin for a moment. We must see all things in light of the Lamb who is slain. Remember, God is the author of Scripture, not only regarding the words, but also the events. So God is orchestrating an event which tests the faith of Abraham, who will be our father in the faith, and which gives us beautiful imagery by which we understand how Christ, carrying the wood of his sacrifice, will offer himself to the Father. And St. Paul makes sense of this by quite simply telling us that everything which Abraham was asked to do was to prove his faith. Yes, by faith he obeyed and left, you know, Ur of the Chaldeans. By faith he offered up his son Isaac when tried. And he received the promise, offered up his only begotten son. 
and he believed with faith that God would resurrect his only begotten son. That's what St. Paul is clear about. So this faith that if God can give a child miraculously, God can also give this child life again. So God shows Abraham and Israel to protect our faith in Christ. If Abraham is our father in faith, he must have a perfect faith, which is tried through suffering. It's like in the spiritual life, you know, we have the dark nights of the soul, by which faith is tried by great trials. And so we must look at the Bible, again, theologically, not in isolated events, but what is God doing? Okay, he's testing the faith of Abraham. He's preparing us to understand Jesus Christ, who will redeem us, the only begotten Son of God. Could you say that it was maybe more important, and again, uh, trying to understand the motives of God can sometimes be a difficult task, oftentimes is a difficult task. Could we say that maybe God was doing this not so much so that Abraham could prove his own love to God, because God already knew it, but in order to to be the, the sharpening stone, to make Abraham sharper, to, to, to really get him to be stronger in his faith. Is that maybe the motive there? Is that maybe why it's hard for us to understand this? Yes, strengthening faith. Because if we are having sensitive consolation and everything's going well, how do we prove to God that we, as St. Augustine says, that we love the God of consolations more than the consolations of God? So the mm. good test in life is, do we love God because he gives us consolations? Or do we love him because he is God, who's worthy of our love? And I think maybe we can go a little bit more into the into that sacrifice, since it is so such a stumbling block. So mm-hmm. Abraham knew that Isaac was ultimately a creature of God. So God created Isaac as each one of us. He knew that in a special way because he was a child of promise, conceived in a certain miraculous way, insofar as um, Sarah was beyond the years to have children. So he did love Isaac, but he realized that he had to love God more. And Isaac was ultimately a creature of God. Therefore, he must love Isaac for God's sake. And that's something we have to keep in mind. God is all-powerful. Everything belongs to him. He's the master of life and death. And sacrifice, as you've seen earlier, was given to man by God to keep man in the state of dependence on God. We really hang upon God. We need God for everything. And we have a twofold relationship with God, creatures to a creator, redeemed to a redeemer. So sacrifice is necessary to keep this proper relationship. And since God is a self-subsistent being, nothing can be added to him. Since he's the source of all being, we owe him everything. And there's a beautiful you know, paradox. Nothing can be added to God. We owe God everything. God mm-hmm. will sacrifice to keep us in the state of dependence. But, and I'll quote from the um, a book, The Great Story of Israel, speaking about this event. So. So sacrifice does not actually affect God because God cannot change. So give a quotation. Sacrifice, rather, it breaks, as it were, against the rock of divine simplicity and self-sufficiency. 
and comes back to benefit the one who made the sacrifice. So it's what we already said. Sacrifice keeps us in our proper relationship with God so we can be saved. God requires sacrifice to keep us in this attitude. Therefore, when we make sacrifices, it does not benefit God. It bounces back and benefits us. And this is what is symbolized by the interruptive move of the angel who gives back to Abraham, his son, who he was going to sacrifice. So God is not manipulating Abraham or compelling his hapless creature to commit a crime. No. What we have in this admittedly strange scene is a sort of icon representing the key dynamics in the spiritual order, which which have to be interpreted with spiritual eyes. So we do see God is the master of all. We must love God above all creatures, all creatures for God's sake. We must be willing to sacrifice everything for God. When we have that attitude, we're perfectly disposed to be saints. So all that's included in this beautiful yet mysterious request of God. And we know in the Roman Mass, we make a reference that our sacrifice be a spiritual sacrifice like that of Abraham. So his sacrifice was perfectly accepted to God because he accepted this reality that everything belongs to God, which can't be otherwise because God is the creator who who holds us in existence at every moment. Right. Like you said, it is a it is often a stumbling block uh, for people who don't understand the the concept of God created everything. Everything is owed to him, even your own children. And God does not routinely ask this of fathers to sacrifice their sons. No. And if somebody thankfully. thinks God is, they better go get some serious um, consultation, <laughs> right. medical examinations. You know, these things um, happen in a very unique way in salvation history and are not the norm. Right. It's fascinating. I was um, I was watching another video recently about about the mass and and the priest giving the talk was saying, you know, in the Old Testament, you would bring up the lamb and you would give the lamb and it would be slain and, and it was gone and you would bring the flesh back and, and roast it and eat it. But in the new sacrifice, we are sacrificing. We're sacrificing our Lord Jesus Christ himself. But God is so good in the new covenant that he then gives our Lord Jesus Christ back to us again. In So we're sacrificing and receiving and it is a, um, but I love that quote that you had about the the sacrifice is breaks against the rock of divine simplicity. It benefits it us. It doesn't. It benefits us. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, okay, back to Israel. What is? What are the next steps? So we have Abraham. We have him accepting that he will sacrifice his son. God intervenes. Then, then next, what? So Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob, and you know, for the sake of time, we'll pass over all of the beautiful divine interventions. There, we'll briefly consider just Joseph. Joseph, who had these dreams which caused his brothers to envy him, he's then taken from his homeland. Well, first he's lowered into a pit, lowered to Egypt, lowered into prison. All these humiliations by which he keeps faith in God and he grows in humility. And then God, through these dreams, exalts him to make him the ruler of Egypt. So again, singling out one person who will save his people. And these moral lessons, of course, of chastity, of abandonment to divine providence, of humility. So we see that all in Joseph. He then becomes the ruler of Egypt at a time when the whole world was starving. And everybody had to go to Joseph to get food. 
just like everybody needs to come to Christ and the church today to receive spiritual food. And then he saves his family who comes down to Egypt. They grow into a very powerful people, but they also become slaves. They take upon themselves pagan practices. They become slaves, which is a symbol of all mankind under the slavery of sin. And so then we see God again, choose one person in the person of Moses. So at that time, the pharaohs were killing the, the male childs of the, of the Israelites. So this mother to save Moses puts him in a little basket and floats him in the Nile. What's interesting to note is Moses, who is going to be a type of redeemer, like Joseph, like Noah, he's put in a basket to be saved. And yet the word in Hebrew is teva, which is the same Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for the ark which saved Noah. So we see the theological symbolism, this thread going through all sacred scripture. There's this little ark, this little basket, which saves a man from death. This man will then save his people, which brings us to the Exodus, where Moses will really be a type of savior to bring his people out of bondage. And again, we see the bondage which the Israelites were subject to was symbolic of our bondage into sin and how God tells Moses, take my people so they can offer sacrifice in the desert. Sacrifice is the most liberating thing because it puts man in proper relationship to God. So likewise, Christ, we see a parallel in the New Testament by which he's healing people of their diseases to show them that he wants to heal them of their spiritual diseases as well. Christ and God, they intervene in history primarily for spiritual motives, but because we're body and soul, we need all these historical human elements to speak to our senses as well. It is interesting you see that that God is putting the Israelites, the Jewish people, through a huge amount of trials, sufferings during this time, first being in slavery and then you know, wandering the desert, going through all this, this difficulty during these 40 years after being let out of slavery. Uh, is it to, again, is it to prefigure something? Is it to teach them a lesson? Is it to make them stronger like with Abraham, what are the motives here? Or is it the all the above? It's all the above. For example, we'll just look at the Paschal sacrifice. So God is calling the Israelites his firstborn son. Pharaoh won't release them. So God, in a certain sense, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, after nine plagues, decides to take the life of the firstborn of all those in Egypt who do not accept the redeeming sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. And again, God's God's master of life and death. But in this imagery of sacrificing the lamb, marking the doorpost with blood, the angel sparing you, all that ingrained into the people a sense of slavery, how evil slavery is, how to be liberated from slavery. And that ceremony performed for over a thousand years by the Jews prepared their minds for Jesus Christ, the true Paschal Lamb, who likewise comes working wonders. For example, the first plague of of, uh, Moses was turning water to blood. The first miracle of Christ is turning water to wine. And then his 
at the Last Supper, he turns wine into blood. So there's so many parallels there. But God, through this slavery, through this sacrifice, is preparing this people to have this profound sense of redemption, this understanding of redemption through blood sacrifice. So when Christ would come to save all mankind from all sin, they would accept it and bring it to the world. And throughout the 40 years in the desert, we see the Jews tempted to complain. We see them tempted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. Well, the desert's a symbol of this life. And all of us, after our baptism, are tempted to go back to the slavery of sin, are tempted to abandon God, are tempted to complain. And God, through these powerful punishments, some of the most severe, or the most severe, I think, is when they complained about the manna, shows how much he hates our complaining, and he wants us to believe that he is God. He is all-powerful. He wants this filial state of dependence by which man recognizes the power of goodness of God and really just never complains because God has our best interest in mind, which is our salvation. So we see that, you know, over and over again in the desert and the chosen people. God is preparing them for faith in Christ to come. And he does allow some, some fairly extreme evils, that's for sure. I was just going to say, I, there, again, I, I get that God is trying to teach us a lesson, trying to get us sharper in our spiritual life, so to speak. Um, but you look back, especially if you're a more sensitive reader of the Old Testament, there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes down, to use the vernacular. Um, the, 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 like you said, the extreme evils that it seems like God is permitting. How do we, how do we justify that or, or square that square that peg? Yeah, we'd like to come at that from a future for maybe distinct angles. One is that we have to avoid hyper-focusing on any particular event and also make a distinction. Be, what is God teaching us through the event? And what is just a historical account, which is meant to be a lesson but not positively willed by God? And we'll, you know, allow that later. God never wills sin, that's for sure. He wills to permit sin, and, and we will introduce that or rather develop that bit later. But one is we can't hyper-focus on any isolated event. We must realize that God is trying to form a people with faith, a people who hate sin, a people who will bring in the Messiah. And so any evil he allows is for that good of purify people who, who believe in God. And even St. Augustine struggled with this a bit, and it was resolved by St. Ambrose's teaching on the typological interpretation, so that God allowed things to be a type of a future event. For example, the Paschal Lamb is a type of Christ, the manna a type of the whole Eucharist. And then St. Augustine started seeing all the types in the Old Testament which pointed to Christ, and they started to make more sense. Just like mm -hmm. Origen, we must read, even in the violence, everything in light of Christ to come. So I would say whenever we see a very difficult scene, in what ways is preparing people for Christ? Or in what way is it preventing them from falling into idolatry by which they lose faith in Christ? For example, when they're commanded to, you know, kill all the all these pagans, 
The reason was, is while God is giving all these pagans the grace to be saved, but God knows if the Jews intermarry with these pagans, they'll lose faith in Christ. And everything is for the sake of Jesus Christ, who is the center of history. And everybody's receiving enough grace to believe in Christ. That's why we see even uh, the woman Rahab, who was saved in spite of her sinful lifestyle. So God's giving everybody of goodwill the grace they need to be saved. But to be saved, you need faith in Jesus Christ. So everything is hinging upon protecting the faith in Christ, purifying people's faith so they can receive Christ. The atheists or agnostics or primarily atheists would would look and still look at some of these events, some of these um again, these more bloodthirsty, so to speak, quote unquote, events of the Old Testament. And they will, and I know you said not to really just single those things out, but they do exist and they are there. Um, Atheists would say, this makes God look evil, petty, awful, bloodthirsty. How do we answer that, Father? Yes, that's that's a common quote from the God delusion of, you know, Richard Dawkins, that that the God of the Old Testament is really the most unpleasant character in all fiction. And then he goes through all these you know, these names by which he criticizes God, but we can pass over that, um, but we can try to answer him. So really what they're refusing to do, Dawkins and the and the atheist, is that they're refusing to accept, first of all, the existence of God as proved by reason and by faith. They also believe that the human intellect is the highest intellect. So they refuse that idea that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. And therefore, they cannot see history intelligibly. They cannot read beyond what just the accounts are, are saying, so to, speak, so to speak. And one just criticism, you know, as I was reading a bit of the God delusion, is he has one chapter on what about the Bible or what the arguments from Scripture, rather. And when you read through that, you're like, wow. If you compare that to the intellectual rigor of the books, which I recommended last podcast by Brant Petrie, you really see this incredible intellectual rigor. Dawkins just dismisses all that like it doesn't exist and pretends like there's no reason to believe that the books of the Bible are credible. So if his intellectual rigor is that um, is that um, weak when it comes to just historical documents, we can see that he's not going to take time to go beyond that and try to see, well, what is the theology of history? Well, he doesn't believe God exists. So then he just looks at these human events and says, well, the God who would exist would be an evil God. Therefore, we we dismiss him. It's interesting to kind of tie it back to the very beginning of what you're talking about, this philosophy of history. Again, we are we are all products of our current generation, of our current biases, of our current, you know, that's, that's obvious. <clears throat> and so I, I guess what you're saying is Dawkins is looking at this from the philosophy of history of a humanist, of someone who thinks that the, the human intellect is the greatest... Uh, greatest thing that exists in in the universe. And because he's looking at it with that incorrect lens and not looking at it with the philosophy of history of the, with theology, that's where he's really falling short. Yeah, he denies theology. He, he denies theodicy, so natural knowledge of God. And so, yeah, his philosophy of history is the rejection of any transcendental motive beyond man himself. And man himself mm-hmm. is, you know, doesn't have the whole spiritual dimension in his philosophy of history. 
So yeah, so you see that a small error as regards to, you know, even man's proper spiritual nature leads you mm-hmm. to living in darkness as regards the real history of mankind and all of the, yeah. you know, the, the beauty that man's capable of and which man does perform thanks to the work of God. But in a certain sense, there's nothing too new here. Um, I would say what's new about all the new atheists is that they're ultimately they say, well, the consequence is we can live however we want. There's not a real profound, you know, consequence beyond that. Whereas there were atheists in the past who, who their atheism led them to this hatred of God, this, you know, contempt of God. Um, the, the modern atheists seem more just to be kind of no consequences. But that's not really the point here so much. But the point I wanted to bring up is it's really reiterating a ancient error, which goes back to um, uh, ancient heretic Marcion and the Marcionites. So he was a Gnostic who, who, um, who declared that the God of the Old Testament was an evil or lesser counterpart of God. So we already see back in the second century people saying, reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament God was evil or lesser. But St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus defended the biblical authors. And they, they were clear, as we all can, can be clear when we read the scriptures, that God, the God of Israel, the only God, made everything, even the smallest details. And that if he allows something by his positive will, or by his permissive will, rather, he does so for a reason. So God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. So this idea that because there's difficult things, God is evil or God doesn't exist has been addressed by the beginning. But the early fathers, through philosophy, they knew God existed. Through faith, they knew God existed. And therefore, they had to say, how do I make sense of reality and like the fact that I know God exists based on what Scripture says? Scripture, which is very reliable as a historical historical source. So that's what we need to do is go back to the earlier podcast. Can we prove that God exists? If so, must he be good? And C.S. Lewis actually talks about it at one point is when he was converting, he was struggling. Is God good? Is the Bible inerrant? And because he also thought so many things in the Bible are too painful and he decided to believe in God's goodness over the um, inerrancy of the Bible because he thought some things were incompatible with God's goodness. Whereas what we're saying is, no, everything in the Bible is compatible with God's goodness, at least through his permissive will. Which brings us to maybe some of the misconceptions we could look at in more detail. Well, I was just going to say, so what are some of the ways that people are misinterpreting the the actions of God in the Old Testament, um, it, it, it's funny. I maybe I, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it, it's commonly said that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New yeah. Testament. But that's not really the case at all, is it? No, and that's one first misconception. The first that people say, you know, the Old Testament God was the God of wrath. The New Testament God is the God of mercy. Well, actually, Dawkins doesn't say this so much. He even looks to the New Testament and criticizes, you know. He says, basically, except for the Sermon on the Mount, there's not much even in the New Testament, which is worth um, worth our consideration as far as the God of mercy. But most people do make that that distinction. And um, 
So, and what they do is they look at some of the harsher actions of God in the Old Testament, some of the most merciful, the new, and they create this opposition. Whereas, in fact, the Old Testament is also full of beautiful passages of God's love. We think of the Canticle of Canticles, some of the Psalms. And the New Testament is also full of God's justice. So, in order to pretend like they're totally different, you have to dismiss all of the beauty of the Old Testament as far as the beautiful passages of God's mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. All these beautiful passages. And we have to dismiss all of Christ's harsh you know, words, so to speak, to the Pharisees, the, the hypocrites and whatnot. So already that distinction is too simplistic. Um, mm-hmm. And Christ himself said he's going to come to judge the living and the dead on the clouds of heaven. And he rebuked those who were um, unjust, the hypocrites living in sin, um, the unbelieving community. So Christ is also the God of justice because he's the same God as the Old Testament, just the second person right. of the Holy Trinity. That's one misconception is cherry picking what you want out of each Testament rather than reading the whole, knowing that God is the author of the new and the old and all of its elements. Interesting. Yeah. I was actually just reading something today. It was a little bit humorous, but it was talking about how um, Christ, you know, getting the, getting the, the sellers out of the temple scripture says he, he took a, a, leather and he braided it. Yeah. Uh, and someone who knows a lot about that stuff said, you know, it actually takes two or three hours to properly braid a whip. So our Lord is sitting there for a couple hours in theory. We don't know for yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Braiding a whip. He didn't just fly off the handle. It was a very deliberate. I'm going to go and mete out justice to these guys. Exactly. Even when he showed anger, it was, it was perfectly godlike, you know, so right. it wasn't some act of right. uncontrolled rage. Right. You said there's a couple of misconceptions. What's the other one that you'd like to look at, Father? The other would be um, the nature of God's will. So in the Old Testament, the authors refer to God's will without the same distinctions we use today. So they often just speak about God willed it. So today we strongly distinguish God's permissive will and positive will. If something happens which is morally evil... We understand that God's providence, which encompasses his permissive will, allowed it and allowed it for a greater good. The Old Testament doesn't make that distinction. It doesn't mean they did not understand it, obviously, but they weren't accustomed to speaking in that way. And therefore, you'll read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, what we would say is more accurate is God allowed his heart to be hardened because God gives grace but doesn't force grace. So these different way of speaking, and it is a matter of speaking. Archbishop Sheen notes that the Eastern cultures usually focus more on the type of language which speaks about the all-powerful action of God rather than man's free will. So the biblical authors of the Old Testament focus more on just God's will without that important distinction. But again, they don't deny that distinction. When we read the Old Testament, we just have to read that distinction into it because that's the proper understanding. So just because God allowed evil <clears throat> does not mean he willed the evil. Right. It's interesting. Just from that linguistic difference, we can get wildly different conclusions. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Hmm. Um, as we kind of wrap this up, it, it's interesting. It seems that there's this one big thread throughout of providence. It's all God's will. Everything that is being done is, is according to his will. 
And when man strays from God's will, bad things happen. I mean, if you can summarize scripture, essentially, that's the story of scripture. Yeah, divine providence. And when you read the Confessions of Augustine, I would say that's really the thread which ties together the whole thought process of St. Augustine. God's providence, ever pursuing mankind, even when we're far, he's close. He chastises to purify. Everything's in light of our eternal good, a loving father. So that's really the central theme to the Bible, to the theology of history, is that, and it's based in all the philosophy you considered earlier, nothing can escape divine providence. The hair on our head, the birds in the sky, everything corresponds to God's providence, yet he respects our free will, and therefore he's like the hound of heaven trying to pursue us while leaving us free. And we can't fathom the mysteries of providence, but we have to adore them. You know, the Old Testament directly addresses this in the book of Job. And of course, we know in a certain sense more than Job now, because we have Christ. We understand the value of suffering. Job, without knowing Christ like we know him, accepted suffering because he accepted providence. And he wasn't even part of the chosen people in that sense. He did not have the same revelation. But there's a beautiful exchange between, you know, Job and God, which I think is worthy of our reflection. And we know that the questions of God are more satisfying than the answers of man. So God asks certain questions to Job when he's complaining. And I think we should reflect on these questions when we're complaining about the mysteries of providence. Where were you, says God to Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? So have you caused the sun to set and to rise? Who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth, issuing out of the womb? Hath thou entered into the depths of the sea and walked in the lower parts of the depths? Who is the father of the rain or who begot the drops of dew? So will you ever put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? That's very much the modern attitude. We don't understand God, so we condemn him so we can be justified. Have you an mm -hmm. arm like unto God? Beholding these mysteries, Job realized and said, Behold, I am of a small account. I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So when we're complaining, read those words of Job. Yeah. Try to humbly enter into the fact that we are little creatures loved by God. And therefore, the key is to humility. And that's St. Augustine as well. He was a Manichaean. He was proud. He was living in sin. He couldn't understand the scriptures. And he says, the reason was I was not humble. You need to humble yourself, enter into the scriptures humbly, that everything makes sense. God is all-powerful. He's a perfect act of intellection. And scripture confirms this idea that God is so much more perfect than us in the following words. As my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
my ways are not your ways. As heaven is above the earth, so are my thoughts above the thoughts of man. So rather than trying to always reduce everything to our human perspective, which is a created, limited intellect, we need to have the humility to see God's perspective, who's this infinitely powerful, all good intellect who wants all men to be saved. In fact, I'll give just a little kind of anecdote, maybe to, to personify maybe these two worldviews, the one which tries to enter into God's point of view, the one which reduces everything to our point of view. It's that famous quote from Stephen Hopkins who claims, heaven is the fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. That's one way to look at, you know, people believing in heaven and the supernatural. Well, we're afraid of the dark, therefore we choose to believe in heaven. But a, um, John Lennox replied to him, atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. And in fact, we want to walk in the light of God. Scripture gives us the light of God. We need the humility to see things from God's point of view, which sheds a beautiful light on our life and all of Scripture, because all the things in Scripture are meant to teach us how to live in order to live in the light of God, knowing that His thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways, and everything works to the good for those who love God. Oh, it's a beautiful, <clears throat> beautiful reflection, something that we don't often understand. Uh, and I'm reminded of what we talked about last time, you know, and I, I think I asked you, should we be reading scripture? Should we just, as Catholics, should we just pick up the Bible and read it? Um, and you said, yes, with reservations, with a guide, with someone who is, you know, uh, help, who's helping us through it. And this is precisely why, because we're going to see a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament and go, that's horrible. God is horrible, right? I mean, we, we would have that temptation to see it that way, um, but understanding it through the, the proper theology and philosophy, we can see that it is not what our human uh, mind comprehends. Yeah, so we pick up the Bible with humility. The thoughts of God are not our thoughts. And then we'll be in a disposition to receive light from the Scripture. Now, of course, we still need a guide, whether it be a scripture commentator or, you know, some instruction. There's plenty of them out there. We St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Thomas, Cornelius Lapide, Monsignor Knox. There's countless out there. So it's good to have a guide as well, because otherwise we could fall into the Protestant error of making scripture mean whatever we want it to mean. Right. Um, and right. as like St. Peter says, that's twisting it to our own destruction. But if we pray with humility, accepting the guidance of the church, that'll give us profound lights and insights into our own lives as well. Fantastic. Father, thank you so much for taking the time to go through these last couple episodes with us. Um, it has been really fascinating to dive into the scriptures um, in so much more detail. And it looks like we will be seeing you again in about 24 weeks or so. Great. So in about six months, maybe. Okay. <laughs> All right, Father. Thank All you. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us, and God bless you. <laughs>